no matter what kind of student you were in school, the last thing you look forward to was a pop quiz, right? Where just the teacher just springs it on you out of nowhere, like, oh, no, here it is. And now I'm tested on the information. You know, they even did this at seminary. I was surprised because when I got to seminary, I thought, you know, that verse, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And yet they still gave pop quizzes. Like, how did they get around that? I couldn't figure it out. But, you know, I thought that must have been like a scheme of the world, some kind of worldly device, but it didn't turn out to be the case. The church faced tests as well, only they are more like pop quizzes, just like in a marriage. And this morning, we're going to see how the church responds. We've been going through the book of Acts, blueprints of a healthy church has been our theme, and we've kind of studied what a transformational church looks like. And last week we saw the first persecution of the church as Peter and John were arrested and they were beaten and they were threatened and they were told just to keep quiet. And that was tough. But this week, the test that we're going to look at this week, this pop quiz that the, that the church would soon face was a different kind of threat. It's a threat from within. Now, now the problem is internal. External problems are never fun, but internal ones, something that comes from within can often be much more difficult, a much more serious threat. And so we'll see, hey, this threat that that the church faces is just like a pop quiz. It comes out of nowhere. You wouldn't expect it and you, re- and you rarely can. You can't just put it on, a, on your calendar and schedule it and say, okay, this is the day that we're going to be tested. You, you know that tests are coming. That's just part of life, but it's hard to schedule. It's hard to know the type of threat and what's going to happen. So let's go ahead and begin in Acts chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. Go ahead, turn there. Acts chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. And just to kind of set the scene and remind us of the context, we left off last week just by briefly looking at this guy named Barnabas. And, you know, Barnabas was a nickname. His real name is Joseph. And, but he was just such an encouragement, such a ray of sunshine to the early church that they gave him this nickname that they just began calling him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was this type of example, this kind of shining light where he just encouraged the people and they were motivated by his presence. They enjoyed being around him. And he was so generous, in fact, that he sold a piece of property and he gave all the proceeds to the church. And so this gift, it funded the ministry of the church for a while. It was a generous gift, and, and people took notice. And Barnabas, he, 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 he wasn't in it for any kind of glory. He wasn't in it for the recognition. He wasn't in it for people to notice him. He just wanted to give generously, and word spread. Um, but as we pick it up in Acts chapter 5 this morning, I, I think it's actually one of the most unfortunate chapter breaks in all of Scripture, Acts chapter 5 is going to be, begin with this word, but. I, I believe that the story of Barnabas, and now this morning the story of Ananias and Sapphira, I think that Dr. Luke wrote Acts in such a way that these stories are supposed to be told in tandem. Because Ananias and Sapphira, they see what happens with Barnabas. And then as it encouraged most of the church, this couple they, they wanted the same nickname as Barnabas. They, they wanted the same kind of recognition as Barnabas. But the problem was they didn't have the heart of Barnabas. Let's go ahead and check it out. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, I sold it for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they, re- and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So here's the test. Here's the pop quiz. It's culture from within. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a problem from within. And you see the problem, the first internal problem that the church faces, it's not immorality, it's not embezzlement, it's not greed, it's not anger, it's the first internal problem is hypocrisy. It comes from this Greek word, means actor. You've likely seen the old mask, right, that the Greeks would hold up from the stage and one would have a big frown and the other would have a big broad smile and the Greeks could just use these masks interchangeably and they could act as if they were all these different characters, gods or other people, and they just use the masks. And so each actor, they could play numerous characters, always pretending like they were someone else. And that's what Ananias and Sapphira are doing. They're wearing masks. They're trying to pretend like they're like Barnabas. And and they gave the gift, and it looked spiritual. And it looked generous, and it looked good. But they're simply wearing a mask. See, it's possible to look good. It's possible to look spiritual. It's, It's possible to have everything on the outside look like you've got it all together. But at the same time, it not be genuine. It not be pure, it not be right. And you know this. In fact, we've probably all heard someone say at one time or another, you know, the reason why I don't go to church is because of all the hypocrites in the church. Church is full of hypocrites, that's why I don't go. It's full of people wearing masks. The, the tragedy is there's some truth to that statement. And in this passage, we see how seriously God takes hypocrisy. You have Ananias and Sapphira, this couple who witnessed this generous gift that Barnabas had given. And, and I believe that this couple had responded to the gospel. This couple is a part of the church. I believe they were baptized. I believe they were Christians. See, I, I think the message for the church is to be pure, to be authentic, to be genuine. I mean, 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 John chapter 5, they, they both say that it's possible for a believer to die that the ultimate punishment for them to be an untimely death as a result of continued unrepentant sin. Now, I believe that the lesson that the church needed to learn was that it needed to be pure. 
And that if this message were simply a judgment involving two unbelievers, that it would fall short of carrying the weight that the church needed to understand. But it's a sobering thought to read this story of two likely new believers and they give the church a substantial amount of money. It's, the, the problem was not that they held back some of the money for themselves. That's not the issue. The issue is they lied about it. The, the issue is they wanted to look as if they gave it all, as if they were so generous, so spiritual. And we look at it and we say, well, they still gave a good chunk of money, you know. I mean, they sold a piece of property and gave a lot of it to the church. I'm sure the proceeds helped the church, this seems a bit extreme punishment. I mean, they both should just die instantly. That, that seems a bit extreme. Why would God be so harsh with them? Why would he take such an extreme measure with them? See, in our logic, it hardly seems right. But I think the context kind of helps clarify things a little bit. You may remember back in the Old Testament, God's people, they were led out of Egypt by Moses, and they spent about 40 years wandering around in the wilderness of Moab until finally they arrived in Canaan, a portion of the promised land that they were supposed to inherit. They, all that time that they wasted in Canaan, or in, in Moab, they were supposed to be in Canaan inhabiting the promised land. And finally, under Joshua's leadership, they're able to enter and they possess a portion of the land. And as they enter there, one of the first things that happen is there's a man named Achan. And he stole some things that didn't belong to him and it was forbidden and he wasn't allowed to do it. And he brought it and he hides it in his tent so that no one will know. And God moves quickly and Achan is killed and it taught the nation the people of God who were responsible to represent God to all the other nations, it taught them the value of integrity, of authenticity, of honesty. Because these people, they were to represent God to all the other nations. And now as God draws up his blueprints for a healthy, transformational church, he knew his church needed to learn the same lesson. Because of during this time of grace, this dispensation of grace, it is the church who represents God to the world. And here's Ananias and Sapphira, and they don't represent him rightly. They put on a mask, they try to pretend like there's something else, and the church must know that integrity, authenticity, honesty, these are not optional things for the people of God. These are essential for a healthy, transformational church. The, the biggest issue with Ananias and Sapphira was not that they kept back some of it for themselves. It's that they lied about it. And they persisted in that lie. And they continued to tell that lie. And they tried to put on this face that they're perfect and they had it all together. If they could have just been honest and said, hey, we, you know, you're right. We did keep some of it for ourselves. We tried to act like... We were given it all just like Barnabas, but we actually kept some of it for ourselves. Then the church can forgive and they can move on. It's not that these people were not perfect. It's that they tried to put on this mask and convince everybody else that they were. You see, the reputation of the church is whatever your reputation is. The, the reputation of that church in Jerusalem was the reputation of Ananias and Sapphira. The reputation of central is whatever your reputation is. Is this a place of integrity? Your friends will judge that if you're a person of integrity. 
Is this a place of, of authenticity where we can be real and genuine and just honest? People, your friends, people in the community, they will judge that by us and the way we live and how we conduct our lives. God includes so many stories of just real, authentic people, people who dealt with serious stuff, hard things. They're stories of sin and sorrow, but so many stories of redemption and second chances. In all of us in this room, we are a product of second chances. We are a product of a good, glorious God who's entered into our lives and given us a second chance so that we could be made right with him. And you know what? In our culture, maybe more than any other culture before, people are looking for people who are real. They're looking for people who are authentic because everything is fake. I mean, you know, I saw you here. Fake news. This news is fake. This news is fake. This, what, what can you believe? People are hungry for people they can trust, for something that's real, that they know this is true. It's not about being perfect. It's just about being honest. And being honest about our mistakes and said, yeah, I did that and it was wrong. And I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? If you can learn those simple words, it was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Man, your, your credibility, your integrity, it just goes off the charts because those words are so hard for people these days. You know, we defend our sin. We make excuses for our sin. We try to hide behind it and put on a mask as if it didn't really happen. We've got justifications for everything. Our reputation will determine the reputation of our church. And the reputation of the church determines the reputation of Jesus in the hearts and minds of many people around the world. We see this in the book of Acts. And and, and there's this very sad couple of verses that are included here in Acts chapter 5. Before Acts chapter 5, if you look through uh, Acts chapter 2 through 4, what you see and what what we read was about this great unity in the church. And there's this great rejoicing and great joy that's taking place within the body of Christ. But now in verse 11, you don't see great joy in the church. What you see there is great fear permeating the whole church. See, here's the point. Compromising your character, it affects the whole church. Compromising your character affects the whole church. The whole church goes from this state of joy and rejoicing to now fear. Because sin has taken place and they've seen the judgment of God and how seriously God takes sin. It's a healthy fear, but it's still, it's, it's fear. And it moves from joy to fear. And not just in the church. Did you see verse 11? It even extends to those outside the church. To anybody who hears about it, this is now the reputation of the church. There's people in the church who are lying who are wearing masks, and there's this judgment, and God has put it on them. And so now as this church continues to live on mission, you see it in verse 13, that people not dare to go into the church. They do not dare to be associated with these people because what would happen if I sin and God does that to me? Or, hey, I can't measure up, and I hear about what's going on. The reputation of the church is compromised in the church and outside the church. See, we can sometimes buy the lie that our sin only affects us. The apostles tell Ananias and Sapphira that, hey, first of all, you haven't 
sinned so much against men as you've sinned against God. All sin is ultimately against God. And any sin separates you from God. Sin still separates. Even though you have a relationship with God, sin still separates you from God. It destroys the fellowship, the unity, the closeness with God that you're supposed to have. You know this, right? I asked Bill and Phyllis, they've been married 65 years. I'm sure they can tell you that when one sins against another, at least for a time, the fellowship is broken, right? You know, if you find out that the other person has lied to you or has spoken unkindly to you or whatever, at least for a time, the fellowship is broken. There's a trust that needs to be reborn because sin separates. It still separates. Even after we've become Christians, sin hurts the fellowship. And this is what's happening to the church. It affects the whole church. And understand that this church was a church of between ten and 15,000 people, okay? The church is exploding. It's a church of between ten and 15,000 people, and yet still the whole church is affected by the sin of this one couple. Compromising your character affects the whole church. But though there was great fear in the church and even extended to anyone who heard about it, the leaders continued to keep the church on mission, They continued to go. They continued to share the gospel. Miracles were happening. It was an exciting time as this church is being born and people from all around Jerusalem are coming and they're they're wanting to hear what's happening and they're bringing their sick loved ones and friends with them to be healed. And and all these people were being healed. There were no failures. Everything was happening perfectly. And the church continued to grow, 10 to 15,000 people. I mean, you talk about church growth movements. Jesus initiated the very first one. God designed his church, a healthy, transformative church, to be a growing church. This is the prayer of Deneen, right? Over in, in Japan. They want a large church. They want to reach more and more people with the gospel. Because a healthy church is a growing church. It's affected by the sin in the church, in the congregation. It was affected. But as this church continues to grow, at the same time, here's the Sanhedrin, the group who had just arrested Peter and John earlier, this religious group of people, and they're stuck in their ways and their traditions, and you can almost hear the conversations that they're having with each other, can't you? Just, oh, man, what is this new thing all about anyway, this new church? How come everyone is going to them and now listening to them as if this is some kind of movement of God? We, we got to get things back. We got to go back to the good old days when we were the respected ones and we followed the traditions. This new thing that's happening, we don't want that. We need to regain our influence, get back to the way things were. In Acts chapter 5, the Bible says that the Sanhedrin was motivated by jealousy. See, they're they're looking at the church, the apostles, and they're saying they're stealing the, the, the power and the attention that we worked so hard for that was ours, and we want it back. So let's get rid of them. The same way we got rid of Jesus, let's get rid of them. Here's the scary reality, though. What happened in the heart of the Sanhedrin, the jealousy that took place in the heart of the Sanhedrin, it can happen in the heart of a saint. Jesus, or I'm sorry, James is going to spend a lot of time writing about 
that in his letter to a group of scattered believers. And he talks a lot about jealousy. He says, hey, if you have jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, just call it what it is. Don't, don't, don't try to lie about the truth and call it something else. And he goes on to say, he says, that where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. This is how seriously that God takes jealousy. James understands that jealousy in the church destroys the unity of the church. Jealousy in the church destroys the unity of the church. So when people in the church care more about their power and their preferences, the way the Sanhedrin did, the unity of the church evaporates. The part of the power of the church that God designed, this healthy, transformative church, is a church that's united, a church that is one, a church that is devoted to the right things. As people are joining this church, they're asking, okay, now what can I do to help share the gospel? How can God use me to continue to be a light and to go forward? The question was not, okay, now what programs does this new church offer for me anyway? You know, how, how does this church exist to serve me? That's not the question of the church. The question of the church is, how do I get to serve? How, how do I get to be a part of this? J- James says that if you have a church that's focused on my priorities, my preferences, the programs that I like, that what you're going to end up with is a church that's mob rule. There's going to be disorder in every evil thing because everyone's only concerned about which ones do I like. They're not worried about the central thing, which is the proclamation of the gospel. This is very important here at Central that we proclaim and teach the truth of God. That's our mission, just to faithfully expound the scriptures because the power is in the word of God. The scriptures are more relevant than you and I will ever be. They're living and active, more more able to equip and transform lives than you and I will ever be. Our power comes from the Holy Spirit rightly dividing the word of truth and teaching it effectively to the people. And so we, we try to have programs that are exciting and relevant and that people enjoy, but those programs are just the tool. The power is the word of God and understanding it rightly because right thinking produces right living. In Acts chapter 5, it's, it's the Sanhedrin who is jealous. But unfortunately, it can take place within the church as well. The Sanhedrin arrested and imprisoned the apostles. And you see it, we don't have time to go through it all this morning, but I encourage you to read Acts chapter 5 this week if you get a chance. And And after they imprison them, an angel of the Lord comes in during the night and he just lets the apostles go. And he tells them, hey, go in the temple and just start preaching the the word of God. And so that's what they do. And they're preaching and and a crowd gathers and people are are responding to the gospel. And this is the challenge for us, though. The, The Sanhedrin is trying to shut them up. But nothing will shut them up. Nothing will get them to stop sharing the gospel. They are focused on the mission they've been given. What causes you and I to stop sharing the gospel? What what would it take to prevent you from sharing the gospel with someone else? You look at these apostles, nothing is going to stop them. 
I mean, they are committed. Maybe even though, unfortunately, a better question for us sometimes can be, because we get so comfortable here, is what will get you started sharing the gospel? Not what will stop, but what will even get you started? See, here in this church, this healthy, transformative church, they're so passionate, so focused on their mission that, man, these words are just coming out. It's just, it's just naturally going to come out. I've got a cousin. She was on, a, on an airplane, and she had been traveling around, speaking at various events, and as she's traveling home to her home, she's just kind of ready to be done and to kind of veg out for a little bit. And so she puts her earbuds in and she just wants to listen to this book on tape and, and just kind of relax. And this lady comes and sits down next to her and she's just, she's an older lady, but she's just bubbly with a whole bunch of energy and, and excitement. And, and she sits down next to my cousin and says, hey, um, where are you headed? And my cousin Lisa, she just kind of sits back and she doesn't want to engage. She says, I'm going home. You know, just took one earbud out. I'm going home. Then put the earbud back in. Kind of rude, you know. And, but this lady's not letting up. She says, well, I'm, I'm connecting a flight in Chicago, but then I'm, I'm going overseas. Some country in Africa. I forget right now which one, but some country over in Africa. And... My cousin Lisa, that's great. She didn't even take her headphones out, her earbuds out this time. Just, okay, that's great. This lady wouldn't let up. She says, hey, hey, well, I want to tell you about it. And she's hitting my cousin's knee. And Lisa's like, okay, fine. You know, what's going on? She said, well, my husband died a few months ago, and it's always been our dream to go on a missionary trip together. And he's not able to go with me, but I'm so excited that even in my mid-60s, I'm able to go to Africa, and I'm going to be sharing the gospel with these people over in Africa. Have you ever heard the gospel? Nothing was going to keep this woman from sharing the gospel with my cousin. You know, she put the earbuds in. She's totally dismissive. She's checked out. She doesn't want the conversation. But this lady was so persistent, so after it, just knowing her mission that, hey, I'm tapping you on the knee. I'm engaging. I'm doing whatever it takes, but I'm having this conversation. You're hearing the gospel on this plane today, whether you want to or not. This is what's taking place in the book of Acts. This is what a healthy church does. They know their mission, and man, they engage it. As the apostles are, are sharing the gospel, the Sanhedrin, they're looking around. They say, what are we going to do with this group? And they're enraged, and they want the power, and they want the control. They say, okay, let's just imprison them, and even more, we just need to kill them. We need to get rid of them. And then a teacher of the law, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, he stands up in front of the Sanhedrin. And he says, hey, if we kill them, then the, we're just going to make them to be idols and everything, and the mission will continue to grow. But if we just kind of let it go, it'll naturally die down, just like all these other movements that have come before, and it will come to nothing. And then he adds this caveat. He says, but, you know, if this really is a movement of God, there's nothing we can do about it anyway, and we will ultimately find ourselves fighting against God. The Sanhedrin hears the advice of this Pharisee, and they say, fine, okay, we'll just let them go. And so that's what they did. The, the Sanhedrin, they come, and they 
flog the apostles, they beat them, and then they let them go. And as the, as the apostles were leaving, they leave rejoicing. The joy comes back to the church. They're just flogged. They're limping away probably, and they're high-fiving one another that they've been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. See, a, a healthy church realizes that, hey, persecution is part of the game, that sorrow and difficulty, that's just part of it sometimes, and to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, this is a great thing. And so the church rejoices. And then more tests for the church arise. Look at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Acts 6, 1 through 7. Now in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole group. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. See, there's a new complaint in the church, or at least a new test in the church, because a segment of the church is being overlooked. Two kinds of Jews at that time, those who had assimilated into the Greek culture of the day and just taken on the cultural practices of the day, these were the Hellenists, and those who, who didn't, who kind of abstained and withdrew from culture, and these were the Hebrews. And the Hellenistic Jews, they're being overlooked. No one's tending to their needs, and the apostles, they get wind of what's happening in the church. And so the leaders of this original megachurch, they get together and they gather the church together and they say, hey, what, what's going on here isn't right. We've got to fix this issue. So we need seven men, good men of high standing who are respected, and you need to go out and you, you need to serve these people. You need to serve these women. This is our job, our responsibility as the leaders of this church is to focus on preaching the word and a prayer. That's if we can preach the word effectively and if we are praying fervently for this church and for our people, it will grow. This is what we must give our lives to. But our job, part of that in preaching the word is to equip you to do the works of ministry. This is your job. This is your role. And so we need some leaders who are going to head that up. And so here's your first deacon board, the very first deacons. They're chosen, and they're, the job of the deacons is to go serve, to do ministry, to be an example of serving to the rest of the church. And so they began this, this new discipleship uh, pipeline, and they, and they called them these deacons to do their job and to serve and to be this example. And this is a beauty, beautiful example 
of how a healthy church maintains her mission despite challenges and changes. A healthy church maintains her mission despite challenges and changes. And we see this beautiful example of unity within this church, a church that's challenged, a church that's changing, a church that is, is worshiping in a whole new way, that's never worshiped this way before, and people coming in from around Jerusalem. And, and you see here the, the unity found in this church, a multicultural church, a church with different ethnicities and different socioeconomic levels, and a church of all kinds of things that you could look at and you could say, well, shouldn't this divide y'all? I mean, maybe y'all should have separate churches or something. And they say, no, no, the unity that we find in Jesus Christ is greater than anything that could ever divide us. Anything that the world would look at and try to split you into different segments and different blocks of people, says, no, our unity found in Jesus is greater than all of that that we're united by the blood of Christ. And so the church is changing its leadership structure. It's adding new programs. And there's growing pains along the way. The way people worship is changing. But God designed a healthy, transformative church to be able to pass every test because of the unity of the church. And the unity found in a relationship with Jesus Christ is stronger than anything that might divide this church. And so the church universal and the local expression of God's church everywhere faces challenges and changes today. The church still today face tests, face pop quizzes that you can't see coming and you don't know exactly what's going to happen. But just as this church there was able to ace every test, every pop quiz, because they were empowered by the Holy Spirit, and because they they maintained, they did whatever they could to maintain the unity of the church, they passed every test with flying colors. And so today, we must be prepared to pass every test that comes our way. And the only way for that is to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit who empowers us who gives us the wisdom to think rightly, to discern correctly the word of God, to love God, to love others well. And if we do that, we'll pass every test as well. Everything we need to maintain a passionate pursuit of our mission in unity is given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this week, let's let's just ace our mission. Let's live on mission this week. Heavenly Father, What a great mission it is that you've called us to, to be able to proclaim boldly, truthfully, passionately the good news of your gospel. And God, we we recognize that, uh, that you've designed the church to grow and that healthy things grow, but in that growth comes opposition, sometimes external and unfortunately even sometimes internal. But God, help us to lean on you. Help us to be empowered by your Holy Spirit. And God, help us to be so committed to the mission that you've given us that nothing would ever give us, get us off. God, this week, as we go about and as we are scattered into the community, give us opportunities to share your glorious gospel that we would represent you well in this generation. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.